Well, thank you for having us back on again. Best of the season. I think it's been best part of a year since we gave you an update. But um, for those who don't know us, uh, this is Altius Minerals Corporation. Royalty company focused primarily on non-precious metals. Maybe that's changing a little bit. Uh, I'm Brian Dalton. I'm CEO. Brian, good to see you, sir. Uh, you're right. It has been, I think, sweet at the beginning of the year. Um, and what a year. Crikey, what a year. It's been hard to read for about the past two or three years during this kind of COVID period, this inflationary period of ours. Um, when you look back to this year, did it pan out the way you thought it would? It was a hard year to read going in. You know, we're all kind of at that point of when does the market provide incentive pricing so that supply can be brought to the market because there are some really serious uh, supply-demand deficits looming. And, you know, the year wrapped up, we can say it's another year that incentive pricing in most major commodities was not provided. And uh, you get what you pay for, and pretty much no capital was put to the ground, and we're a year closer to those deficits without any supply relief in sight. And I think it's an extraordinarily bullish setup. It is It is a bullish setup for those who are patient. Uh, for those who aren't, it's been quite a noisy year. Um, a lot, lot, of, lot of people concerned um, about it. So I want to, in a way, the way that you constructed your portfolio is kind of like the way we like to construct our, our portfolios, give us balance for the highs and the lows, because those highs and lows don't happen to companies in the same way. So again, just looking at the way your portfolio is structured, any lessons learned or has it gone to plan? I would say to plan. I mean, we set ourselves up with long-term assets we buy them once you know we don't trade in and out so you know you're making when we make calls we're making long-term calls so the macro means a lot more to us than the day-to-day swings and whichever analyst is trying to beat up china's growth rate tomorrow and you know trying to cover a short or something like that none of that stuff really matters but the big macro is has been intact in fact probably strengthened i think there's more cracks that have shown in existing supply this year that might be the hallmark of this year that is not just about lack of incentivization for the required growth to come but the vulnerability of what's already the base uh, production amounts particularly in copper that's been that's been that'll be one of the big stories that you look back on and say about 2023 yeah for sure now there's been a disconnect between the uh, incentive price and there's also been a disconnect with equities in, in terms of the, the the metals that the you know you're certainly involved with, um, again I know you've got this macro view and you've got this long term view, but d- has any of that going to surprise you in, in in a way? Because you know the gold guys have been under pressure for three years, um, price has moved, margins haven't really changed. Um, it's hard to get money for gold, you know, junior gold projects, development projects. In fact, you know, you've seen, you know, something in your portfolio where you've, you know, you've got, we're talking about the Adventus, the Limnex merger here specifically, you know, companies have to readjust and be agile and nimble and, and, and just change the, the, the moving parts on the, on, on the table as it were. So do you see, do you expect to see a lot more of that? And, or do you think that equities will start to come through and the incentive price will start to come through next year? It's a short term time frame for me to make a call around, but again, it's been so long now since we've had investment either in the form of you know capital commitments from major players supported by their major shareholders uh versus you know this return that returns of capital mantra that's persisted for an unprecedented period now so it, when it cracks it will crack 
very, very powerfully, I'm sure. Um, similarly for, you know, more junior type capital sources, more speculative flows. I thought we started out the year first, say third of the year, there was, I felt there was some sentiment starting to build and a bit of enthusiasm starting to, to happen, but that really dissipated as the year went on. And uh, it's really tough if you were a development stage player, uh, really, really tough if you're a junior looking for exploration dollars, maybe, you know, with some small pockets. Uh, you know, uranium stories have got, got a bid lately, but, you know, broadly speaking, no, the speculator and sentiment generally is it's downright depressing, which I actually find really exciting, but uh, weird. Yeah, I, well, it's, but it's true that, you know, when the, when the wind blows, um, you know, everything kind of resets in a way. So, you, I mean, let, let's take an example. Of, let's, let's go back to the Advantas Lumenax situation. Okay, they've come together. Why is it going, why is it going to work? as two rather than the way things were going on there before what what does that sort of thing in the market do because there will be more of this we've seen a few there will be more one suspect but what does it what does it do for you lazy confidence i believe it adds to the probability that the el domo Curibamba project gets built and we own a royalty on that asset we're also obviously big shareholders of adventus but you know primarily there our focus is on on the two percent royalty that we have on that project you know it's a fantastic high-grade project there's obviously issues in country around uh, just political upheaval and permitting and the all these types of challenges but you know you can't overlook the fact that capital costs have been increasing in the space and that financing is hard to come by so probably the most complementary feature i see there is just bringing together that um that project and the really strong technical execution that Adventus has, has, has achieved in bringing the project uh, to this point in advancing the social license and now bringing in Ross Beattie and his team and their track record to really just uh, support the overall initiative through late stages of financing and building. I just, I mean, I'm sure in some ways people would say that the, the Ross's entry there looks opportunistic but i actually think it's it's a strengthening move you can't always measure these things you know on a spreadsheet sometimes it's more the intangibles that that define success or failure and i really do believe this is a really powerful um combination now to finish the job right well and, and in a way as a royalty holder i, I guess you, you don't necessarily mind what what happens to um whether it is opportunistic or not the royalty stays stays the same but just again, more broadly looking at, and this is this is a kind of question around how you, in terms of what you've learned over the course of the past couple of years, in terms of what you've seen and how you go about constructing your own portfolio, we've seen all sorts of political um, upheavals. You know, we've got you know Venezuela, Venezuela recently, um, you know, trying to you know renew their claims uh, against Guyana and you know offshore oil and potentially onshore gold. Um, we've seen all sorts of you know conversations in Chile around you know new constitutions, etc. Mexico is going through a, a change and that's and that's running uh, re regulations as well. Do these things, as a long-term outlook player, do these things change your mind about investing in certain countries, or do you think these those sorts of events over the course of time even themselves out and projects do get? Done and therefore, for you, maybe it's a case of getting in cheaper, 
um, but we're having to wait a little bit longer or do you avoid that sort of thing? I mean, it's difficult to be in this industry and to say you're going to avoid, you know, everything south of the U.S. border and the Americas. It's just difficult. Basically, that means that the world won't get the metals it needs. It's that simple. Um, yes, specifically to certain regions within countries, because I think it is very local in some cases. Some of it's bigger picture. Panama, it may very well be countrywide philosophical. We'll see what happens when the economic consequences hit home, how that all plays out. Peru, Chile maybe has come through most of it. Argentina is an enormous wild card right now because if you if you really look at what projects are out there and again, I'll go to copper, that could make a difference, that could become part of the that supply equation long term. An awful lot of the the otherwise, you know, likely candidates, you know, politics notwithstanding, sit in Argentina. So that that's a really interesting place to watch over the next little bit. We're willing to take some risk because we're willing to take very long-term bets on, on some of these jurisdictions. But the overarching message here is that that additional challenge that exists around where you can execute a project and even after you've executed it you know what you can rely upon in terms of your your fiscal regime and tax policy and all of that that dynamic to me what it does is it it adds dramatically or greatly to the uh, risk profile the implied cost of capital for making those projects work and that overall is enormously inflationary uh, to the overall cost structure of winning these metals from the ground. Like the smaller this world gets, the more local or, or you know, countrywide share of the of the overall pie is allocated, you know, that way and not towards, you know, paying back project finance. You know, these things all have to be met with more price. It's, it's the only way. So I'm incredibly bullish. Don't forget we're a royalty holder. Those additional costs that might come on, they won't erode our royalties. They'll impact the margins of the mine operators, but to the extent that higher costs, no matter where they come from, lower grades, higher taxes, whatever, it doesn't matter, are ultimately going to be reflected in the price required for the materials. We're full beneficiaries of that top-line revenue growth. So, I mean, I don't want to be cute about it, but inflation is a driver of our business. It isn't... It isn't a challenge. I mean, I would still like to see an easier world to get this stuff done because the world needs it. But um, in our case, it, it is a benefit. Is a benefit really in the long haul? Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's a benefit. It's, it, it's a benefit as long as it doesn't kill the company and they can keep producing. Uh, and it's I'm trying to think of the right word. It's but might be benefit. But I'm not sure benefit's the right word. It's like it it doesn't affect your bottom line. It, that, that That's for sure. For the companies, their margins get squeezed, and as long as it doesn't get to squeeze to a place where they have to stop, it's all kind of good news. I mean, let's, let's just talk about one thing. That you, you come back to a couple times, copper, right? And if I'm, if I'm and you've talked about some of the issues around supply and obviously getting funded, getting funded in not an onerous way, i.e. that the money is not too too destructive, the cost of money is not too destructive, these these companies need money to move forward, and um, assuming that the political environment is there, the social environment is 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 there, and um, you know they they can do that. But it seems to be there's a kind of we talked about disconnect earlier, but it's a disconnect between 
people's perception of the need for that supply and the demand fundamentals in the copper space at the moment, right? It's like, oh, China's going to be building less houses or, oh, China's building less cars or China, China, China. Again, how do you, how do you read that kind of copper environment? Because it, 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 seem, it seems to me very short-termist at, at, at the moment in terms of sentiment. Very much so. I mean, the supply story is fairly, actually, fairly transparent. There aren't going to be mines that pop up out of nowhere that nobody saw coming. That's never going to happen, right? So the opposite is not true, though. Can production disappear out of nowhere? Oh, boy, yes, it can. Um, so in that dynamic between supply and demand, supply side, I've never seen anything set up like this before in my life. Like, this is crazy now. Um, these mines that are meant to go down, you can't wish more ore back into the ground. Like, they're done. We truly are done. So that's why I think we had a fairly bullish setup starting in the early part of the year because this was this was dominating. But then the bears jumped in and it was like, oh, no, we've got demand destruction coming that is going to more than offset that supply destruction that's coming. And like, this is, a, this is an ugly market. There's going to be a big, uh, you know, supply-demand surplus, right? There's a surplus of production because demand is going to crash that bad. And sure enough, sentiment dissipated and um, shorts had a fun run of it all and longs got crushed. But let's look back on the year now. Guess what? Depending on whose numbers you look to, turns out copper in China consumption will be up between 5 and 8% this year. What? I thought it was going to be cut in half. I thought the world was over as far as copper in China. China, China was loving this narrative, this, this, everyone talking down the price of copper mid-year. Guess what they were doing? Find the living shit out of it. Like, come on, guys. Like, it's, it's, anyway, it's fun. But, and then other little touch points. Look at the cost overruns on QB2. We would have guessed the incentive price for copper this time last year at around five bucks. That's where we're kind of to. But if you start to plug in real life numbers, because those we were using kind of data sets, but if you look to recent examples, like the capex intensity for QB2, once all of the overruns are factored in, and you plug that back into an incentive price model, your copper incentive price goes into the sevens and eights. Anglo just came out. So they've been spending all this money to grow all this production. And that was in our earlier numbers, right? They're spending this amount of money to generate this much of this much growth. And that informs a capital intensity that can go into an incentive price model. Well, now they spent all the money, but guess what? You're not getting the copper. You're getting a fraction of the copper. Hence, the CapEx intensity number was understated in the fullness of time. I.e., it's not $5 incentive anymore, right? So that's the real stuff. Overall, this year, copper consumption in you know the gloomiest of years for copper, it's up. It's on trend. It's on trend. Growth. An extra five or 600,000 tons required this year over last year. Guess what? It'll be the same thing next year. It'll be the same thing the year after that if we don't even get demand surges from electrification or anything else. But that's that part. The supply side, we can we, you can see it. You there won't be surprise production. Trust me on that. We're not going to surprise the upside on production in copper for a very long time. It's getting harder to find. You need to dig deep breath. Oh, wonderful. And, and the grades are getting lower. So, uh, yeah, it's, it kind of feels like it's a bit obvious, but it doesn't feel like the market's 
felt it's that obvious. Maybe a factor of the fact that it's been a risk-off environment. People are, you know, concerned about their own cash positions. But uh, institutional guys, I'd have thought they would have worked this out. I mean, maybe some have. I mean, you're not hearing the big investors, you know, berate Rio to or BHP and say, well, "What are you doing? You're not investing in your mines either, right?" And and they've got to do something. They know that. You can sense that shift. They feel that there's an opportunity and a window. But I also think they're facing the reality that they don't actually have a lot in the cupboards to bring to the market. So even if they wanted to take a, like a, 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 bull, a longer term or a few years out kind of more bullish view and make their capital investment decisions because they know it's going to come, um, probably take a beating for the, from the investors for a period of time. The reality is, is that even if they wanted to take that kind of a stance, there isn't much that they can go to that looks attractive, probably until you're looking at copper in the eight, 10 range. Like that's where we're to. It's, it's, yeah. Same with what, three, it's right, three, 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 you're going to see more of this, like, um, BHP buying Oz, that kind of thing, right? It's just right now the spread between the cost of buying a unit of existing production for a medium sized player to the concept of going and building your next best big greenfields mine, that spread right now is enormous. It's, it's an M and A. It's a recipe for M and A. There's no doubt. For, for, for sure. And, and I think that the M and A will, will be coming and it's great. That's and the big boys will open up the balance sheet and, and, and stuff will start moving forward. But it's just moving the pieces around the deck. I think the problem is finding the new stuff because we're going to need multiples of what we've got now by 2050. Um, and I think that should be allowed. Yeah, it should be alarm bell should be ring, ringing. A player that has a project that actually has expansion potential, Brownfields expansion, is looking really attractive right now. People will pay up for that because, again, the other spread that's out there, like the CapEx intensity for Greenfields versus Brownfield right now is probably as wide as I've ever seen it as well. In particular, if you're looking for M&A, targets here it's somebody who has a project that a big guy looks at and says well we can come with our firepower and our expertise and we can we can actually come to a we can actually generate a positive irr and an investment in growing that project whereas the, the smaller player maybe just doesn't have the wherewithal at the moment but as you say be- that'll represent a fraction of what the market is going to need like a, a small fraction yeah, and the big guys will be getting uh, getting it for a bargain. They will, because um, you know when, when these kind of cash constra- cash constrained companies, you know they they don't have the kind of competitive tension that they're going to need to drive that acquisition price up. So I think you know it's going to be great time for the the mid mid caps and the and the and the, and the big boys. Um, but we we're in violent agreements about copper and the copper <laughs> market. Let's let's say that. Uh, they, what we need to discuss now is again maybe you know we're having this outlook on, on on copper, but we had this outlook I felt two years ago that was the time for potash, but it's gone through a kind of you know f- funny old period in terms of uh, pricing, in terms of the the, the market and um, and how that's controlled. How's that affected you? And can you see some you know blue sky in front of you? Yeah, well, anytime I've ever talked to a potash, I, you know, long term is the word that comes off my tongue most, and it, it's it's just one of those commodities and these potash mines in Saskatchewan, they're as long-term as, as it gets in the mining world. Um, so it's all fine. Like it's all fine. Last year, 
we made it a crazy amount of money from potash, like way more than we were expecting. But it was because the potash price shot up on uh, on the Ukraine Belarusian situation or the Russian Belarusian production risk and scare, and price shot up. Well, that caused the farmers, the buyers, to say balk and say, "I can't pay that for potash," and they sat it out. They just said, "I'm just not going to put it on the ground." So fast forward 18 months or so, and it's now it's showing up in um, the yields that their lands are producing, right? The yields are dropping quickly because they economically chose to not apply nutrients. There's no rocket science. This is about as basic a biology as you're ever going to deal with. Um, and now all of a sudden, there's it's payback time, right? So now you, you can't get away with not putting nutrients in the ground. And so what we're hearing from our operators is that their, their last quarter was setting records in terms of demand for potash. The prices are, have stayed more moderate, which is positive, actually, because there needs to be that right equilibrium. And uh, there's incremental volume growth that's happening. Global demand is, you know, there's a dip in the chart there, like global demand for potash last year in response to the high prices, looks like a low point. Looks like it's going right back to trend line now to its good old 3.7% growth rate over time. Uh, still the best mines in the world, still incrementally bringing down production. A fair price right now, I don't think it's a strong enough price to incentivize the growth that's required going forward. But I mean, I'm not whining about it. It's all fine. Potash is all fine. Potash is all fine. Good. I, 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 I hope so t two years ago. Um... BHP hopes so two years ago. We all did. Um, it's, it's a funny old market, that one. But I'll tell you what's not a funny old market and, and a little bit more exciting for you is, um, and, and, and you've got a royalty on this, is with Champion Iron. They green. They, they are green. They're a green company. Um, that potentially could be a real game changer for you. How are things advancing? And so you can see what I'm doing. I'm just going to have a quick run through your portfolio so see that how, how that's balanced. But Champion Iron strikes me as something that's going to be sort of uh, disproportionately important to you. So Champion has a royalty on a project that we originated 20 years ago. I mean, one of the unique things about Altius is that even as it's become more of a royalties business over time, it's always maintained its exploration focus, generate our own projects, farm them out to developers, retain royalties. So it's a bit of a differentiator. We don't just buy royalties in the market. We, we work to create them long-term as well. So the Cami project was one of those projects, discovery was made and it came close in the last cycle, um, but didn't quite get there when, when things crashed out in that 2016, 2017 period, a lot of money got spent advancing the project, but it, it never got to production. It's found its way to the champion iron ore. Uh, and what's one of the things that's unique about the Cami project, this is a much stronger attribute for it now than it would have been even 10 or 15 years ago is that it's a very rare deposit that can ultimately produce ultra high purity iron ore and by ultra high purity i mean rich enough or or pure enough that it can go into directly into electric arc furnaces alongside a scrap with no coal input and so that that's an important point i, I want to come to so we're champion is too they've been working advancing the uh, updating a feasibility study around a very specific plan to develop CAMI to produce that direct reduction or electric arc furnace capable grade material. So that's 
literally around the corner, days to weeks is what we're hearing for, for that uh, feasibility result. And um, I, I think the messaging out of Champion of late in its own, you know, investor materials and whatnot, it, it sounds fairly positive, but I won't, I won't try to prejudge it. But it's a big scale project and we have a fairly large royalty at 3% gross revenues. And so, you know, if we go from today to a few weeks from now and a change in, in, in view around Cami and when it might, if A, if it's going to get built and B, when it might get built, it, again, it, it has the potential to be our single biggest royalty practically overnight. And there's very little value attributed to that you know, amongst any of the analysts who cover us. So that that's, I guess it's it's pretty exciting, but I don't want to I don't want to overhype it. We'll let Champion do their thing, and, and they're a great operator, one of the best executors that I've ever come across in my career. So it's in their very capable hands. But I'm I'm pretty optimistic. But the other thing that's going on is the market has really come their way. They've been talking up green steel now for a number of years, right? And it kind of it's a bit of a novel message that they're sending out which flies very much in the face of what you would hear say from a Rio Tinto or a Ballet or a BHB they're basically saying that the era of the blast furnace is over and that the era of the electric arc furnace is upon us and why you don't hear that being broadcast by the Rios and BHBs of the world is everything they produce is suitable only for the blast furnace market and again Champion is trying to look ahead and say I'm sorry guys but what you have before you know it, nobody will want it. And that's a really crazy statement when you think about the iron ore platforms of these big major companies. They are the absolute backbones of these businesses. And here's somebody that's saying, I I'm sorry, but nobody wants your material anymore. It's redundant. Or it's a it will become redundant over time. Uh, really quick, but a blast furnace, for anyone who doesn't know, takes in varying qualities of iron ore, mixes it with coal, and out comes steel. An electric arc furnace can only take in high purity, iron ore, and scrap, uses no coal, and out comes steel. Well, it's gone beyond speculation now on Champion's part as to whether or not the market is indeed transitioning to this, you know, greener, no, no coal usage form of steel making. You just have to follow the money. So essentially, the entire global steel making complex and industry is investing heavily in building new electric arc furnaces. Nobody is investing in building new blast furnaces. So yes, this takes time for the blast furnace fleet to roll off, but the commitments are being made and the money is going to ground. That electric arc furnace fleet is expanding so fast. None of those new plants can take a typical iron ore that comes out of the Pilbara Australia. Just think about that for a second. I've been drinking the Kool-Aid for a while, obviously, and then we're heavily invested specifically in the Labrador Trough, one of the very few areas in the world that can produce that special quality iron ore and that has available infrastructure. And I'll go further, like just have a quick look through the investor presentations of the Valley and Rio the last quarter, and you start to see it. You start to see the message change. You start to see the admission that they've got to change their businesses and do it quickly. Like there's a there's a recognition that's seeping in that oh shit we're not future facing and the future is not that far out like we really have to do things now or we're suddenly redundant in our core business 
it's really astounding to look at if you go for the look for the subtleties of it. Yeah, look, and, and I think I'll, I'll I'll give the kind of counter to the the, the Kool Aid conversation, um, which, which is, yeah, you know, I think at worst, it's a case of the kind of green cell moves to the front of the queue, gets attracts a premium, a significant premium because people want that first. Uh, we're, unfortunately, we, unfortunately, we're still going to need the kind of blast furnace stuff for a while until it can be, if it can be phased out. You know, and I, th- I think we see that in this in the nickel space in terms of, you know, the Indonesia, Philippines, China process, and you know they're moving to mat, etc. But you, the, the bifurcation of a lot of these commodities is coming partly because of the need for the kind of uh, green credentials. Net zero and all of those wonderful things that people are are, are see, aiming for. Right, if you run a blast furnace in in Europe right now, the reality is, is that it's more than a um, like a philosophical decision. It's an economic one because you're now paying for the carbon that you produce. So the relative economics of one plant versus the other, it's driving. Like this is ultimately still capitalism driving the driving the boss here. But just think about a world where there's, let's say, the world needs the same amount of. There's no growth in steel in the world for the next 50 years, but we still need the same amount as we have today. What you're actually talking about then is market share shift, right? And it's electric arc furnaces present, represent this much of steel making today, blast furnaces represent this much. Well, watch that start to go this way. And now think about that in terms of relative forms of steel, of inputs. So high purity and scrap versus low purity. It means one is a growth market with no real obvious major easy supply sources available to it and the other you know is losing market share it's just not in as much demand as it's been it's losing in a static market whereas high purity inputs gain dramatically even in a flat market that that's like we're saying we're saying the same thing it's just i I think that that time frame that that you know that transition period it will be the interesting one i think there's there's a lot of gains to be had so people it's probably a 20-year story to play it yeah, yeah, for 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 sure, for sure. Um, and just in terms of conscious of your of your time here, I just again looking, you know, I always like to look at like your 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 revenues are well documented, and we 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 can discuss that. But I think it's easy for people to kind of look to. I'm more interested in the kind of development assets in in the portfolio, you know, such as the kind of the nickel and the lithium, um, etc., and anything else. What would you point people to in terms of what these kind of um, materially advanced you know, development assets. What's important to note that we haven't discussed yet? Well, I think without question, the biggest sort of story catalyst that's come out of our business this year, I say it came out of the business this year, but it's another one of these, you know, 10 year plus kind of stories that has its roots in exploration. But I would say that I would look back and say that 2023 was the year that the, the Silicon project, you know, went from being you know, an exploration story that looked exciting to being confirmed as a true world-class gold discovery in Nevada. And of course we have the royalty there. Uh, but Anglo Gold, I saw senior executive present recently who described it as, uh, oh, this is a project, this, this project is going to be a game changer for Anglo Gold. Not just, that's a big company to be making those kinds of statements at, the, at this stage. So they've got a concept study coming for the project. Um, Within a couple of months, I would guess, is, is what kind of their messaging. What we're looking for there is a bit more guidance as to what kind of production rate that thing will optimize at. The resource right now, they've published 
in various categories, resources of about 8 million ounces. And there's another discovery called uh, Merlin that there isn't a formal resource. It's close, but they've guided thus far to like six to 8 million. So you add all that up and, and full caveat here around, you know, the, the types of mixing categories and whatnot. But again, indulge me with round numbers here. And we're talking about 15 million ounces plus. That's a pretty mega discovery to have. And, and all oxides, like all leachable stuff in the middle of Nevada. So, you know, what kind of optimal production rate does that land at? That's, that's a question for engineering and a whole bunch of other questions. But I mean, we think it could be material back of the envelope. You know, if people like to run these things and build these things at 20 or 25 years, talking well north of 500,000 ounces a year type potential. Uh, to date, Anglo has is kind of stuck to references to like north of 300,000 ounces a year. Uh, but that was eight or 10 million ounces ago. Right. So that hasn't shifted over that time frame. So that's a big point we've got to watch for in the next little bit, uh, because obviously the value of that royalty is dramatically different at 300,000 ounces or 600,000 ounces or 900,000 ounces a year. So that's, that could be a big driver. Um, and I don't think it's well recognized, the discovery. It's certainly not recognized in the analysts that cover us. There's some value given for it, but it, the numbers we're seeing there would be fractions of what we quite confidently believe we could achieve in the market if we were, for example, to sell it today. Big, brand new world-class gold discoveries in Nevada. Royalties on big, new world-class gold discoveries in Nevada. Probably said it here before. It's about as good as it gets in terms of asset tearing in the overall global mining spectrum. So um, we're expecting a fairly busy, noisy spring on that project as well. We will, once we get those key data points, have a better handle on those key data points or some decision making for us to do around whether or not we believe that the best home for this royalty is within Altius or if we shouldn't indeed be talking to some of the pure play, precious metal players about bending it or swapping it for non-precious metal royalties that they might have that we like. A lot of that discussion has already begun, to be honest with you. We certainly haven't made a decision. If we weren't feeling like we were getting back, either in terms of a payment or in asset quality, something that matched uh, the features that Silicon already has, early stages, likely to grow, likely to expand, all of the hallmarks of an Altheus royalty, uh, we'll simply just hold it. And I'll, I'll have to change my tune and we'll stop calling ourselves a non-precious metals royalty company and we'll just add it as another another pillar. So either way, world-class problems. Love it. Great fun. <laughs> it's all money, right? And however how you want to frame it, however you want to manage that narrative, I, I guess you've got to adjust to what the market wants well, uh, we, to, to a degree. We need to make technical calls on what the thing could be and we need to see what, because again, if we just sold it for cash, the question is, what do we buy? Right. Which, why do we buy it? I mean, I could do a big issuer bid and buy back a chunk of Altius shares. That's, that makes actually some sense to me, but you know, really, when you think about external assets and just balancing portfolios and... Can, can, can you give us a sense of the return on that one? See, that, 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 that's, that's a... Strong That's been a long time. Hold the asset. But if there's good opportunities out there to strengthen our business and our portfolio through, this is a rare kind of asset. So we've just got to keep our wits about us and 
take her time and make good calls for a shareholder. Right. So can you put a number on what that cost you in terms of like way back in the day? Can you even remember versus what it could be worth today? I mean, it's, it's a heck of a return, but it's obviously it's also a long time. Yeah, well, so, it came into us through our merger with Callanan and the grub stake agreement that originated the royalty was funded, I think, with $300,000. There you go. Yeah. Right. Well, look, that's always meant to be a big differentiator in our business has been, you know, you go and buy royalties and you spend X and you've got an implied IRR and you hope that they get bigger and better and that you make, you know, a better return than, than or, or the price goes your way, those kinds of things. That's that's how most of the royalty work, royalty business works. Well, we've always felt that for modest investment in exploration, which we've typically been able to recover, you know, along the way, or even make profits. And we've actually made quite good profits in that business along the way. But the ultimate reason for it was that with the fullness of time, and it takes time, there will be royalties that will go from very low cost exploration stories that will become core elements of our portfolio that will have negative to very low cost bases attached to them. And that will become major revenue contributors. So when you think about what the implied rate of return is for something that is like champion the cami project we've got a negative cost there's a few hundred thousand dollar cost base on silicon these are both two potentially world-class royalties and the rate of return on those is essentially infinite and blended into the overall portfolio construct um you know can be real game changers we've always said to ourselves that we're not here trying to become the biggest in terms of scale that we're you know we have the biggest revenue number or whatever. I mean, we'd like that on a per share basis, but we, it's always been more important to us to think about our business in a way that we, on the final judgment day, that we have the ultimate highest history of rate of return uh, in terms of our royalty track record. I don't care about the scale. I just want us to have run a smart business that in the fullness of time, portfolio wide, can go back and say, money's in, assets created that you know we have excelled and then i feel like we've done our job if i look at this year you've had a good year a few nice sort of um lump sums in there as well the, re- the revenue's been good you've told us about some of the existing um projects and you know how they're faring and some of the you know the, the ones coming through in the next year two three years i mean obviously silicon and, and champion iron very very awesome. exciting you know, but what what's next year look like? You know, because this this is a bad you know when you know swings and roundabouts in the sense of you know it's been a difficult market going forward. The future looks bright. How what's your message to shareholders or people looking in at Altius now? You're not trying to be the biggest, but you're trying to be the best. So, what are they buying into? Well, obviously these particular catalysts that we've already talked about, we're all watching that closely because they could force investment community to say you know what those assets are worth something and they've got to be valued in here right so that's fairly near term but still the bigger picture for a shareholder of altius is the understanding that current prices across the commodity spectrum that we're attached to are still below incentivization levels and that has to reverse it just has to like there's not an if it's, it's simply a win and when that happens in the near term like while it's happening, we'll be beneficiaries from those higher prices, obviously royalties, volume, time, price. But still, the, the, the win here we're all going for 
is the point when that incentivization price comes and it's getting those signals from the operators of the projects that we hold royalties on uh, around expansions, new bills, that sort of thing. Like those, those are the, that's the real game we're playing. And, you know, this sort of newer short-term stuff around big discoveries and whatnot, that that's obvious. Will that day come in 2024? Will we start to get that incentive pricing and see that big shift suddenly happen? I don't know. I suppose I can be bold here. It's, um, it feels kind of close. It feels kind of close. Like this idea that there's a surplus for the next two years and oh, we can all just sit back and don't worry too much about it. Build up some inventories again. That just all got shattered in the past two weeks. There's no surplus. There's nothing but deficits ahead. Balanced if we're lucky for a couple of years before there's a there's some big holes opening up. It doesn't take like it's amazing. It's always been amazing to me how much of a surplus or how much of a deficit, how small it really can be to really dramatically move things and change the game. There's nothing small about the one that's coming. It's going, yeah, to be, it's going to come wonderful. It's going to be magical. It'll be beautiful. Will it be 2024? In some ways, I kind of hope so because I've been preaching it for so long that, you know, boy, I cried bull. On the other hand, it's like, give me another six months of this, please. 